If you would take out your Bibles with me. Let's open them up again to the book of Genesis in chapter 43. Book of Genesis, chapter 43. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 15. So Genesis 43, excuse me, beginning in verse 1 and working through verse 15. Here's what we read. This is the word of God. Now the famine was severe in the land. When they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you and carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send you back. May he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And so the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Our verses this morning are about the heart-wrenching decision that Jacob had to make. I would imagine that many of you in this room have had to make some heart-wrenching decisions in your life. Uh, Maybe you've been in a situation where you had to make a choice, and whichever choice you made, there was going to be a cost. Maybe whichever choice you made, there was going to be risk involved. Or maybe, whichever way you went, you knew somebody was going to be hurt. This is Jacob's dilemma. In his mind, there are only 11 of his sons alive. He doesn't know that Joseph is still living. Of the 11 sons that are now alive, one is in an Egyptian prison. 
And the ruler there has made very clear that that brother will not be set free unless the other ten return, including the youngest, Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest son. He, like Joseph, was born of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved most. And like Joseph, Benjamin was not as wicked and outwardly corrupt as the other older brothers. It is likely in Jacob's mind that that Benjamin is going to be the, the one from whom the Messiah will eventually come. Benjamin, by the way, is a fully grown adult at this point. He is also a man who appears to be walking with God like Joseph, like Jacob, unlike the other brothers. And so here is, here is Jacob's heart-wrenching choice. He can either leave his son Simeon to spend the rest of his life in an Egyptian prison, or he can send all of his sons to Egypt, including Benjamin, and hope that they all return safe and sound. If he chooses to do nothing, Simeon dies in jail. If he chooses to send the sons, he may lose one, he may lose all of them. He doesn't know what to do. This is a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching decision for him. And remember, these are not just characters in a story. This is a true historical account of a very real father experiencing very real anguish. What does he do? Well, at first, he absolutely refuses to allow the brothers to return to Egypt with Benjamin. He makes that very clear at the end of the last chapter, and when this chapter picks up, that's still where he is. He's willing to let the ten others go, but at this moment, he is not willing to let Benjamin go. And yet... God forces Jacob's hand. The famine will not go away. Before long, all of the food that the ten brothers had brought up from Egypt have now been consumed. These brothers have wives and and children to support. And circumstances have become desperate yet again. Now, if Jacob does nothing, not only will Simeon die in prison but it may be the entire family that will die. This is no mild famine. This is a a catastrophic, wipe-out entire families kind of famine. And so the stakes are very high. And in steps Judah. We began to see change in Judah's life at the end of chapter 38. That was the first hint of humility in his life. We, we began to see an acknowledgement of sin in Judah's life. Now, like the rest of his brothers, Judah's conscience has become activated concerning what they did to Joseph 20 years before. Judah appears to be moving towards real repentance. Remember, we've seen before that real repentance always includes both inward humbling an outward reformation. Well, Judah has experienced a degree of inward humbling. We saw that last time. We saw that he and the other brothers were beginning to feel the weight of their sin. They're beginning to understand that God is angry with them because of what they did to Joseph. But now, we begin to see Judah turning from his old ways. We're beginning to see him embrace God's truths and God's principles. Judah steps out from among his brothers and takes the lead. His father, Jacob, wants them to go back to Egypt without Benjamin. 
Judah knows that's a terrible idea, that none of them may come back if they do that. And so he reasons with his father. He reminds his father what the Egyptian ruler had said. He points his father to how serious the circumstances are. Let us live and not die, he says. He says, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Judah even takes responsibility for Benjamin. He offers his own life as a pledge for Benjamin. Suddenly Judah is beginning to sound more like the Messiah that will one day come from him. For Judah is willing to put his own life on the line in order to save this family. On top of all this, he points out to his father how much time has been wasted. If Jacob had not been so obstinate, so stubborn. They could have already gone with Benjamin before. They could have gone to Egypt twice in this amount of time. So we're beginning to see some evidence of grace in Judah's life. We see courage here. We see a willingness to sacrifice here. We see a genuine love and concern for others here. God is working through this terrible season in the life of this family to bring Judah, to bring the other brothers to himself. Now, as we study Genesis 43 today, both this morning and this evening, I'm going to be drawing our attention to ten lessons. Ten lessons. Uh, I'm very much indebted to Matthew Henry, whose commentary on these verses is stock full of application. This could have been twenty lessons, but for the sake of time, I've limited it to ten lessons that we'll cover this morning and tonight. Um, If we are Christians, then we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves us so much that He became a man. He he went to the cross for us. He bore the punishment that was due our sins. And now, alive, reigning over us, Jesus is bringing us to heaven where we will be with Him and live for Him forever. And as Christians, we have responded to Christ with faith. We we love Christ. We long to to serve Christ. We're eager to submit ourselves to Christ. And and we know that His ways are wisest and His ways are best. What we're doing in passages like this is we're sitting at the feet of Christ. And we're saying, Jesus, teach us. Help us to learn how to live best in this world for your glory and for your honor. And so as we walk through these ten lessons, I want you to hear Jesus, your Savior, speaking to you from this chapter. I want you to hear your Savior speaking to you out of the pages of the Bible. He's calling us to live a certain way, not to earn our salvation, but because we've already been saved by His sheer mercy. We are not going to be saved by following these ten very practical lessons. Do you understand that? This is not a a how-to-be-saved sermon. This is a sermon for Christians who who are saved by the merit of Jesus Christ. And we're depending on Him and Him alone. And now as worship to Him, as people who have come to love Him, and we believe He's wiser than we are, we're going to take His word to heart and to seek to live the way He commands in the Bible. So that's the way to take these lessons. As a way of living for His glory, not as a ten steps to earn God's favor. Through Christ, dear Christian, we already have God's favor favor. Amen? All right. Lesson number one. Let us beware the sin 
of stubbornness. Let us beware the sin of stubbornness. From what Judas says, we certainly get the impression that it is way past time for these sons to have returned to Egypt. They should have gone weeks, maybe even months before. The family does not have much time left. They are on the brink of starvation. The the bags of grain and wheat are getting empty. And they've come to this point because of Jacob's stubbornness. Until this day, when God finally forced his hand and through Judah's reasoning changed his mind, but until this day, he would not listen to his sons. Every day, he, he was obstinate. Um, It was another day that Simeon had to stay in that Egyptian prison. Another day that the bags grew lighter of grain, and yet he remained obstinate. And it is a gracious and commendable thing that finally he was willing to listen to the reasoning of Judah and to do what needed to be done. And so I would simply ask us, are we stubborn? Are we quick to harden ourselves against the reasoning of others? Are we quick to close our ears when others are telling us to what they're telling us, refusing to be moved, even when we should be moved? The Bible says very positive things about standing firm for truth. But the Bible also says very negative things about those who will not listen to others, about those who will not be reasoned with, those who who are not willing to be taught. It's interesting to remember that Jacob is also called Israel. In fact, at least twice in this chapter, the the writer Moses uses the name Israel instead of Jacob. I think that's on purpose because this is going to be read by the people of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness, as they're going into the promised land. And what do we see reflected in those children of Israel? They are so stubborn. Over and over and over again, the Old Testament uses this word stubborn to describe the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 9, 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Or Deuteronomy 10, 16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Stubbornness is a willful arrogant blindness. It is refusing to see what others see, refusing to hear what others are trying to tell you, and to doing that out of pride. It is a terrible sin because the Bible teaches that one of the ways that Jesus keeps his people saved, one of the ways that Jesus brings his people to heaven is by using the words of other Christians. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, we need each other. We need other Christians who can come alongside us and reason with us. We need them to show us things that we haven't yet seen for ourselves in the Bible. And we especially need them to come alongside us and to show us things we haven't yet seen for ourselves in us. If we are stubborn, then when people come to us like that, when when Jesus uses his people to shepherd us, to sanctify us, to lead us into holiness, if if we harden our hearts, if we're obstinate and stubborn, we put our very souls at risk. Maybe I'm saying or doing something that is hurting other people and I don't realize it. 
If you come to me lovingly and help me see that, then you help spare me and others the pain I'm causing. But if I refuse to listen, if I continue with my fingers in my ears, then people continue to get hurt. And according to Hebrews 3, if I do this for too long, my heart will eventually grow hard. Sin will deceive me. I will prove myself not to be a true believer through my stubbornness. My faith will prove a sham. I will show myself to have never been one of Christ's true sheep. In other words, church, as with any other sin, we cannot treat stubbornness lightly. We cannot say, well, I'm just getting old. You know, older people were stubborn. Can't talk that way. We can't treat any sin that casually. We sometimes hear people talk about being set in their ways, right? Well, you know, I'm just set in my ways. The Bible calls that walking in the stubbornness of your own heart. We are not to be like that. We are to daily submit our hearts to Christ and to be ready and willing to have our hearts and our lives and our actions and our attitudes and our thoughts reshaped and molded and changed as God shows us new things through the Word and through His people. We must learn to listen to those who come into our lives who seek to reason with us. It doesn't mean that we always agree with them, but it does mean that we are to live in humility and not in pride. Church, there is one thing I can tell you with absolute certainty. You do not have an objective view of you. And I do not have an objective view of me. We need each other if we are to grow in holiness. So examine yourself. Do you need to repent of stubbornness in your life? Jesus says to turn from it. Will we trust Him enough to do so? Now, by the way, as we see Jacob's stubbornness in in this time that has passed between Genesis 42 and Genesis 43, we also see another encouraging sign in his sons. Instead of waiting for their father Jacob to change his mind, they could have taken matters into their own hands. They could have gone to Benjamin, Benjamin, a grown adult, and said, Benjamin, we know what Dad's saying, but we're going to Egypt anyway. Come on. They they could have disobeyed their father. In fact, circumstances were getting so serious here that before long we might would have said they were justified to disobey their father. That for the sake of their families, it was time for them to go get food. And if Benjamin is what it took to get it, they needed to take him. But they were so patient. They, They waited. They did not go against their father's wishes. Probably, had Jacob not changed his mind, the brothers would have eventually had to do that. But the fact remains, they were submissive. They were loyal to their father. They were patient. They reasoned with him rather than disobeying him. That is, a greater, that is more evidence of God's grace now at work in these men whose lives are changing. Now, Jacob hears Judah's reasoning, and at first he protests, but then he relents. And now that his decision is made, and all of the sons, including Benjamin, are now going to go to Egypt, he takes charge of making sure that it's done right. He instructs his sons to prepare a gift of special items that can only be found there in in their home country of Canaan. They're going to prepare these gifts for this ruler in Egypt. The gift is meant to say to that ruler, we don't want any trouble with you. We wish you only the best. It's a sort of peace offering. Uh, You may remember Jacob's done this before. Remember when he was going to meet his brother Esau, his brother that he had wronged so badly years before? 
And when he finally is going to meet Esau after all of these years, he sends this, this gift ahead of him as a peace offering to say, Brother, I wish you no harm. Not too long ago, we saw Abigail do the same thing for David. When we were looking in, in a brief series of messages at Abigail, she, uh, David was very angry, rightfully so, really, almost rightfully so, at her husband Nabal. Nabal was such a fool, but Abigail prepared this gift and sent it ahead to David to appease his anger. Well, next, Jacob instructs his sons to take double the money to Egypt for the food. Because remember, they went last time, and they got home, and their money was still in their sacks. They had the food, but their money was still there. And so his, he says, well, maybe, maybe it was just an oversight. Take back double the money so that you can pay for last time and pay for this time. Lesson number two, let us be honest in all our dealings. Let us be honest in all our dealings. I want us to, to test our hearts here. When you walk out of a store and you look at the receipt and you realize that they have just charged you $20 more than they should have charged you, what do you do? Don't you go back inside? Don't you show them the receipt? Don't you say as kindly as you can, I've been wronged here, I I need my $20 back? Isn't it true that in that moment we get a strong sense of right and wrong? Our our sense of justice begins to to pulse strongly within us. You need to do the righteous thing. You you, you charged me too much. I, I need this money that you took from me. But what about when you walk out of the store and you look at the receipt and you realize that they didn't charge you $20 they should have? What do you do? Maybe you realize there's an item in your bag that it, maybe you just didn't scan properly or maybe it was overlooked. And now as you're, you're, you're walking out to your car, you realize you've got it free of charge. What are you going to do? Are you going to go back inside? Are you going to show them the receipt? Are you as zealous to make sure that that company of people are not wrong the way you would have been zealous if you had been wrong? Are you as zealous to make sure they get their $20 back? Is your sense of justice pulsing as strongly in that moment? Or are you tempted because it worked out for your favor to say, well, their mistake, their loss? Philippians 2, 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Luke 6, 31, As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. Those who act faithfully delight God. They make Him happy. God's people are to be known for their unusual honesty. Crystal and I were talking to a fellow this week about our old Honda Van, and uh, he was going to to make an offer on our van. Y'all, y'all seen it? It's such a treasure. You know, it's worth so much. Um, but he was going to give us a, a price for it. What I'm about to say is not a brag. It's God's grace, and and many would say I was foolish. But when he was going to make the offer, I proceeded to tell him about the radiator leaking and the catalytic converter that needed replacing and the brake problems. And I just went on and on and on, and all these things that are wrong with the van. And 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 the guy stopped me and he said, he, he thanked me. He said, thank you for being honest. He said, most people would not have done that. 
Now, after that, he found out I was a pastor. And he's like, oh, well, that's why. You know, because I guess when you're a pastor, they just assume you have, like it's in the job description. You know, that's, well, as Christians, we all ought to be a people known for our unusual honesty. Being honest, even in the times when, when culture would expect you not to be honest. Um, there is not one iota of deception in our God. There is not one trace of a half-truth in our Savior. Our God is truth through and through. You know who the father of lies is. It's the devil. And so church, we, like Jacob, need to be committed to honesty in all of our dealings. In fact, in the Psalms, one of the chief marks of those who are far away from God is that they are marked by deceit, by unfaithfulness in the way they relate to others. A mark of someone who is resting in Christ, a mark of someone who is secure in Christ's love is that they have no need to lie. They can be truthful even when it means a loss for them because Christ is their refuge. Christ is their strength. They know that even this loss will become gain for them ultimately. And so Jacob sends the money back to Egypt. And now, having made this heart-wrenching decision, not knowing what the future holds for these boys that he's sending away, well, he sends them away with a blessing, with a prayer. Jacob acknowledges that ultimately all lies in God's hands. Jacob has no power to bring these boys home safe. And so he looks to God. And in verse 14 he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. This is our third lesson. Number three, let us commit our difficult decisions to God in prayer. Let us commit our difficult decisions to God in prayer. Ultimately, faith shows itself by being willing to make hard decisions and then trusting God with the results. What do you do when a tough decision comes before you? How do you handle it when you have a, a difficult choice to make? We know we're to look to God's word. We know that we're to pray for God's wisdom. We know that we should seek out godly counsel. But then we're to make the decision. Right? We're not to be the kind of people who get paralyzed in, in anxiety. We're so afraid of making the wrong one that we don't make a choice at all. We're not to be these people either who have this weird notion of God's will as some mysterious thing where you're like, well, I just don't know God's will in the matter. And so you become paralyzed and don't make a decision. Rather, we use God's word, we use prayer, we use godly counsel, and then we make a decision and we trust God with the results. We take our decision to God and we say, Now God, you who works all things for your glory, you who works all things for good, I trust you. And we pray for God to bless. That's what Jacob does here. He commits his decision. It was a tough decision for him. But it was one he finally had to make. And now he commits it to God and says, God, please make it work out well. Bring my boys home to me. Before Jacob met with his brother Esau, he prayed. He, he wrestled with God, if you'll remember. He, he pleaded with God to bless. He would not let go of God until God had blessed him. Now Jacob seems resolved to do the same thing. 
He is asking God. He even uses the phrase Almighty God, meaning, God, I'm not strong enough to bring these boys home. I'm just an old, feeble man sitting here in my tent. They're going to be hundreds of miles away. But you are Almighty God, Almighty God, who holds the hearts of men in your hands and you swing them whichever way you would like. Almighty God, bring my boys home. He's asking God to bless. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And notice what Jacob says at the end of verse 14. Do you see what he says at the end of verse 14? And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. What a hard thing for him to say. I don't think he's grumbling there. I don't think he's complaining there. I think this is Jacob honestly recognizing that ultimately his sons are now in the hands of God. And this is a moment of submission to God. This is a moment of resignation. My sons, I am praying for God to give you mercy before that Egyptian ruler. I am praying for you to safely return Simeon with you, Benjamin with you, but ultimately I now submit my will to God. His will be done. You see, it does us no good to strive with God in selfishness or stubbornness. It does us no good to kick against a future that is in His hands and not in our hands. Right now, the clouds look very dark for Jacob. But in this moment, though he doesn't see it, God is loving Jacob. What these boys are about to do is go to Egypt, and it's all going to turn out for Jacob's good. Jacob is right to submit to God in this matter, not to resist. So this is our fourth and final lesson for this morning. Let us submit ourselves in all things to the will of God. Let us submit ourselves in all things to the will of God. There is a sweet, sweet peace that comes into the lives of Christians when we know that our God is good, our God is wise, and He is in control. And He's not just in control in a general way. He doesn't just stand at a distance from His creation and, and stick His hand in when something big needs to be altered. No, God is at work at all times, in all places, in His world. He is present everywhere. He is working everywhere. And everything is happening according to His will. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from our Father's will. So even the actions of this Egyptian ruler that these boys are going to have to go stand before, even he is in God's hands. God's sovereignty extends to you and me. We are free to do as we please, but God has a way of affecting and influencing our desires so that we freely do what He has ordained for us to do. Man may plan his way, the proverb says, but God directs his steps. When we have embraced this truth, and when we belong to Jesus by faith, it can bring us a kind of peace in the midst of sorrow that this world does not understand. We think of the mother sending her sons off to war. Will they ever return home? Will her boys be okay? What a joy to at least know that whatever God ordains is right and that God is watching over them and God is in control and ultimately all will be well. This is a hard truth 
that Jacob had to learn through many years of walking with God. And surely as he watched his sons disappear over the horizon, heading towards Egypt and an unknown future, there was great pain in his soul. But he also had an anchor. He had a refuge to turn to. He had a God who is his rock. And so church, whatever hardship God has brought into your life, do not despise him for it. Do not become overcome by sinful feelings or attitudes of bitterness or anxiety or hostility or despair. Look to Christ. Christ who has all authority over all things in this world. Look to to Christ and gain a quiet, steady peace for your soul. It may not look like it now, but all will be well. Church, do we remember Christ in the garden? Do we remember the cross and all of its agonies before him? And already he is feeling the weight of the sins and guilt of his people placed upon him. Jesus is is hurting. Jesus is sorrowful. In his humanity, he's wishing there's some other way for God's plan to be accomplished. And yet after praying for his father to take this cup away from him, if there's any way possible, he then says, nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. Jesus went to the cross for sinners. Jesus suffered the very wrath of God. He was forsaken by His Father, and yet behind that frowning providence, God hid a smiling face. For through the cross of Christ, Christ would receive His crown, the crown of one who is now the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The the humbling, the sorrow would last for a season, but joy was coming in the morning. And that's how it is with us. Even in the hard moments, the heart-wrenching decisions of life, trust your God. In the end, all will be well. And so, dear friends, let us all run to Christ and trust Him. Let us take His Word to heart. Let us trust His promises. Lean upon them. Lean hard upon the promises of Christ. Then, in faith, seek to obey Him and find your peace in Him. Let's pray.